outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 82. Today in the show, we're joined by Neil Doherty, and we're talking late season hunting tactics. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. And today, as in this day that I'm actually recording this, today is December 1st. So with November officially now in the rearview mirror, my mind and the minds of many other hunters has shifted into late season hunting mode. So with the late season smack dab in front of us, it only made sense today for us to dive right into some ideas and tactics for hunting at this time of year. And joining us to share his expertise on this very topic is Neil Doherty, who is a wildlife habitat consultant, outdoor writer and author, and just overall whitetail extraordinaire. So with all that being said, in short, Neil's going to give us some great advice on how to fill our final tags in these last weeks of the season. But as we always do, before we give Neil a call, Mr. Co-host Dan Johnson, Dallas-Fort Worth, guess where I am right now. You're in the state of the Big Ten champions. It's funny you mention that because I'm actually in the state where there is a football team that I'm actually planning on going and slashing the tires of all their buses. Oh, and uh, so you're afraid of losing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you're afraid of losing. I guess, <laughs> no, to be short, no, I'm not afraid. I'm excited. I'm very excited. It's going to be a good game, man. It's a big week. Big it's week a, for the podcast. I know. And it's not about whitetails. I mean, it's like, but the let's see, next week, one of us will be bashing the other one. Right. I kind of just want to start now. Okay. Well, <laughs> I know hey, you're I'll right. Tell you what, I looked. I looked at the statistics. Right. And we have, as far as a season, as the season is concerned, we have almost the same exact stats, except for one major loss. difference. You have one loss, and we have zero losses. No, the the, only... the the big major difference is strength of schedule, my friend. You guys have played cupcakes. If hey, I tell you what, if going undefeated was so easy. Why hasn't more people done it? Why haven't more people done it? 
Because they don't play as easy schedules, you guys. Dude, <laughs> we beat Nebraska, who you lost to. We did. It was on a bad call, but regardless, you're right. We lost oh, to him. Bad call. One bad call. You know, I'm not going to use that as an excuse. We should have been able to win the game plenty of other times. So, yeah, we lost the game. Absolutely. But we've played a, you know, I, I, I kid. I kid when I give Iowa a hard time. I know you guys are legit. I know you guys are going to be a serious piece of competition for us. I just simply have faith in the fact that we have beaten the most top 25 teams in the FBS, and we have played one of the hardest schedules out there. And I think that we've just been through a lot of really tough, nail-biting games, and we found a way to win year after year after year, really. Um, so I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith, faith too, Mark. So I guess we'll just have to uh, see what happens on Saturday. I feel like we can't just see. I feel like we need to add a little more on the line. And, and now, you, well, the last time I we know, bet something, I know, we didn't even do anything. We we need. <laughs> and like, that is a, I bet you a million dollars. That is a hundred percent my fault. I just have failed <laughs> to get the stupid thing online. I need to just do that tomorrow. But let's up the ante, maybe even more. But I'm not sure how. <laughs> we'll have to think about it. Got an idea? How do I want to do this? I don't. Dude, I don't know. I just, um, I don't know. <laughs> I just really. Well, how about to your point? We'll, we'll just give each other a lot of crap next week. That's fair. Right, right. Uh, public shaming. How public shaming. I agree. Uh, maybe I tell you what. The loser or the winner gets to make a meme out of anything they want to do. <laughs> gets to make a meme and post it on the Wired to Hunt and the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook pages. All right, fair enough. No nudity and no swear words because we yes. got people out there who I guess I guess look down on that kind of thing. <laughs> There's a couple. There's a couple. There's a couple. All right, I like your idea. We'll did roll you see, with that. Did you see anything tonight? I did. Shooter. Yes. Uh oh. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what. This is uh, you know, for like I mentioned, back in Iowa, for the first time since early November. And, you know, as we talked about back when I was here last time, you know, of, of this, these couple of big properties I got permission on, I found one little corner of this one property that wasn't getting hit by a bunch of other hunters, seemingly. And that's where I saw th- several shooters the first time I was here. And so I went back in there tonight, hung a new tree stand, and I saw two shooters again. Really? Yeah. Now, when you say shooters, what, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, both were, I would say, four-year-olds or older, and both... Over 150, I'd say. Last light? Yeah, no. Um, no. One was at last light. One was like 45 minutes before dark. Who's the first deer in the field? Oh, really? Yeah. The, the issue with this spot is that there's a ton of deer that come out. You see a lot of deer. You see, I've seen like, I don't know, seven different shooters. It's just really difficult to hunt because th- this is the only spot I've found where I can see mature bucks consistently. But the issue is it is just a cornfield it's a field it you know kind of like your situation where these yeah. deer were moving on the other side of the neighbor's line um, on your little property you hunt there well this property all these deer are bedding and coming out on the neighbors and my property doesn't start till literally the edge of the field there's a fence that crosses just the open field so where these deer are coming onto my property i can't even hunt near because there's no trees at all it's just open there's not even like brush it's just like flat cut corn um and they're coming off of the neighbor's cover, 
walking through like a kind of strip of open grass and then hopping the fence into my cornfield. So there's, there's three spots where these deer have been coming out into the field. One of them is completely unhuntable because it's just right in the middle of nothing. Um, one of them, I could put a ground blind up on the edge where there's some tall grass and a couple little bushes. I could kind of brush myself in there. And then the other one is where I can hunt and I've got a tree stand and that's where I hunted tonight. And that's where I hunted a couple times last time I was here. Um, but it's just like, you know, there's three options and it's which one is the big buck going to come out of tonight? Really? Right. right. Um, so three times the big buck, three times shooters walked past this spot where I'm at now, but it was before I hung my stand there. And now I've had, um, couple one shooter come out of this middle spot that's just not huntable and then another buck last time i was here came by the other side where i could put a ground blind but i don't know i'm I'm, it's just kind of playing the odds and hoping to get lucky unfortunately because i i'm stuck hunting this field edge there's just not a better spot i can figure at least if i want to hunt this corner um where i am actually seeing good deer so friday friday your last day yeah, yeah. So when are you going to start throwing Hail Marys? Well, tomorrow night, tomorrow morning I'm hunting a different set, and then tomorrow night I'm going to hunt that stand again where I hunted tonight and saw these deer. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to potentially make an adjustment based on what I see tomorrow night. If uh, It's just that there's almost not even a Hail Mary I can throw. I mean, unless do, I do just, you have a ground I, blind. Yeah, I brought a ground blind. I can pop the ground blind up on the other side, but I don't know if that's any better than this spot. Um, when I'm looking at every encounter I've had and every time I've seen a deer, um, I don't know. I'm kind of, I've been sitting here thinking and thinking, you know, is it worth going hunting on that side when really I think I have just as good of a chances of getting a shot up top here. I had 12 deer come by me tonight within shooting range that, you know, just as easily could have been one of the big bucks. It just happened to be that tonight the big buck popped out in the other one. Um, so I'm going to hunt tomorrow night and then make a decision um, if I'm going to adjust something. Um, I might just uh, get a blanket and lay in the stubble corn and put the blanket over me and then sit up and shoot with my bow. That might be my Hail Mary. <laughs> hey, that's something John Rambo might do. And, you know, from the sounds of it, he's pretty successful. Yeah. You know what I, what I really need is a hay bale blind. If I had yeah. a hay bale blind here, um, which I don't, I have one at home, but if I, I wouldn't be able to kind of set one up easily here. But if I had one, that is the one thing I bet I could pop up right in the middle of this cornfield, right where some of these deer come out. Because the issue is they, they're coming right into this field, way right in the middle of it, away from either side where I can get some type of stand or ground blind. Unless I just pop a ground blind in the middle of this cornfield, wide open, you know, no brush, no nothing. Do it. Um, I'm serious. You give them a day to get acclimated to it, and I I feel that they would just come right up to it. Now, one thing you should try, and I've done this before, if I I, because I tried to pull the same stunt, similar, set a a ground blind up in the middle of a field. I found uh, a standing cornfield, and I cut maybe eight stalks down, put them in the bed of my truck. So when I went down to set the trail, the uh, ground blind up, I zip tied these corn stalks together and kind of put them as a face on one side where I felt the deer were going to be coming through. And I, I almost pulled it off. Yeah. But 
that was uh that was before any type of scent control type stuff and i didn't i got busted downwind gotcha yeah i don't know i might come to that we're gonna we're gonna see how it goes tomorrow and yeah. adjust accordingly but I, I thought tonight man they were moving early saw that nice buck come out like 80 yards away 100 yards away and then these deer came barreling out from the timber to my right coming right past him like oh man like there's six does running looking over the shoulder i'm like gotta be you know a buck mm-hmm. popping out because there's one of the bucks i saw was still nosing a doe around and i think there's a little bit i'm um, still kind of curious yeah. um so i was like maybe we got a we got a buck pushing these deer and, sunday uh, night sunday night i saw uh a doe not pushing them but nosing them nosing yeah. one and, and grunting at her yeah so and then i heard two shotgun uh blasts yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. good. It's a little. No. It's a little early too, right? <laughs> I bet. You, I bet you the shotgun. Yeah, I bet. And I called the DNR. Did you? Yeah. Yep. And I. I tried to report this crime. I. I didn't. It wasn't really a crime. It was just like me going, "Hey, I heard two gunshots, but I have no evidence of anything." And he never even called me back. So that's a bummer. So much for that. Well, you tried. I tried. Next time, I'll. I'll go John Rambo style, and I'll just. You know, full sprint through the trespassing <laughs> into somebody's backyard and, and ah, busted, and then they shoot me. Dude, we've we've never had a Rambo reference ever in the podcast, and now twice in one podcast. I saw uh, I I watched uh, Rambo First Blood Part One the other night. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you went out Sunday night. Yep, uh, and it was looking good too. I mean. A lot of deer movement, a lot of good sign as far as tracks are concerned. I didn't see any fresh rubs or scrapes, um, but but a lot of deer started coming through. And the doe that was being quote unquote, not it wasn't really chased, but he was he was walking fast wherever she would go, and she stopped right underneath my stand. And this this younger buck, he was probably only a two year old. Uh, was following her and then another spike buck came through and he was kind of following her. And, uh, I, I saw, you know, on my buddy's property, it's really thick, right? It's this 15 acres of just really thick bedding. And I could see a buck walking and I put my binoculars up and I could see like a tine, but it's so thick and so far, you know, it was like 80 yards, but I could just make out the, the motion going through the thicket. And I didn't know what it was, but then that's when I heard, the shotgun, the two shotgun blasts, and uh, then after that, everything died down. But oh, wow. the the big bucks are still in the area because what was it last? I checked my trail camera on Monday or on Sunday night, and uh, last Monday and Thursday, both or the big the one big buck was uh, still in the area. So I don't know. That's encouraging. Yeah. So, but I was at work. So, <laughs> broad day, daylight movement, but I'm sitting in a cubicle. When's your next chance to get out? Uh, tomorrow night, and then it's shotgun season, and then I probably won't see another deer. Well, let's both kill one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It could happen. If it does, I'll take Thursday off, and we'll we'll have a photo shoot. Dude, that'd be legit. That'd be it's, sweet. Yeah. Because <laughs> really, we're not too far away. If you shoot one at that property. Probably about 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Yeah. We'll take pictures in the Coralville Mall parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) That'd go over well. Right. 
Oh man. Well, uh, how about we uh, we table this conversation and we get Neil on the line, who we now need to give a call, and maybe he can share with us a couple ideas that will help us actually pull that double off. What do you think? Hey, let's do it. All right. First, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. And this week, we're joined by Sitka product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And we asked Dennis today to share with us his recommendation for what the perfect layering system would be for hunting on a frigid late season day. Here's Dennis. Yeah, and, and you know, and so it, it that one's all about warmth, 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 you know, and making sure you, you have, you know, enough insulation to carry you through the set, but also, you know, being really careful because if, you know, I don't know how far you hiked on that day, but if you don't manage that moisture getting in and out, you know, it could absolutely take you on a curve to be really cold. Um, so I still think you're wearing a merino base layer. I think you're you're going to wear one of the warmest products you can find. And because of the nature of a day like that, you know, I'd make sure it has some kind, it definitely has to be blocking the wind. It definitely has to be blocking the elements and, and controlling that, that insulation and making sure that it stays intact and keeps holding that, that, that valuable warmth that you've built up that you're not going to get back. Um, from the Sitka line, um, you know, I would, you know, I would use our Merino systems, um, but I would use our incinerator as the outerwear piece, um, which for us is a, it's a, it's a down protecting, protected with Gore-Tex, you know, so no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. Um, I can make it through that day. It packs up, you know, so we talked about staying dry, you know, making sure that you don't try to just wear this huge, like Michelin suit, you know, into the woods and, and, and sweat, you know, you don't want to do that. So we try to make sure that we can pack that system. Um, so if you have another, if you know, whatever you may wear, you know, put it in your picture jacket, in your pack. And one thing people don't realize, I think, is when you get to where you want to be, let yourself get cold before you can get warm. And I know that doesn't make sense right away, but what you're doing is just you're letting that moisture evaporate before I put that last jacket on and hold it and, and trap it, essentially. So make sure if you, you, know, you do get to that point, you give yourself time to kind of vent before you put that outerwear on. So there you go. And if you are interested in learning more about Sitka's late season options or other whitetail gear, visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get Neil on the phone. All right. With us now on the phone is Neil Doherty. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, We chatted with actually your dad, Craig, a year and a half ago, right when we started this show. And ever since then, I wanted to get you on um, because I know you've got some some great insight and experiences to share with us. So I'm especially excited to finally make this happen. Um, now, I kind of gave a really brief introduction to who you are at the top of the show. But for those who aren't familiar, can you fill us in a little bit on what you've been doing in the past and what you do now related to deer and deer hunting? Sure, uh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the short version of the bio, uh, started a consulting business in, in the early 2000s. Uh, I am based up in New York State, and yes, we do have country and deer in this part of the world. Uh, but as a consultant, I work up mostly in northern states, and, and I've laid out management plans for some pretty special properties, but laid out properties, uh, about 350,000 acres worth of property at this point in time, and it mostly specializing in small pieces. So there's a lot of exposure to, uh, to, to lots of ground out through there from Wisconsin and through Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York, of course, where I am, and Maine and, and everywhere in between. Um, uh, 
also had done a tremendous amount of research in the, in the food plot industry. Early on in the 2000s, I was working with Mossy Oak and Biologic and helping to establish Nebraska lines up here in the north. And, and also uh, did a stint with Whitetail Institute as well as they were launching some of their Nebraska plantings. So heavily grounded in kind of the food plots and plant stuffs and probably appropriate for what we're talking about today is uh, how it relates to late season uh, use. Uh, primarily, you know, northern guys were trying to store food for late in the year. Uh, during the time of, you know, doing the consulting thing, written a few books, uh, Grow Them Right and White Tales from Ground to Gun, and, and uh, there's a lot of TV stuff and, and things like that, but primarily uh, specialized in helping folks grow some good deer on their property, and, uh, and really once we grow them, you know, a little bit more than a photo contest, find a way to uh, wrap our hands around them at some point during the season and bring them home with us so we're not just getting camera pictures. So we'll try not to marry the art of growing the deer with uh, with designing a piece that we can kill them or a strategy we can kill them as well. Well, it sounds like you're the right guy for us to talk to because me and Dan are pretty good at getting pictures of him, but getting our hands on him is another story. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll try to do the best we can. We'll see. I've seen some of your pictures. They're looking pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. It, it has been a pretty good a pretty good year, but uh, I actually was just talking to Dan a minute ago. Um, I just drove up to Iowa this morning, so I'm, I'm trying to fill my final tag of the year here and uh, – I'm hoping maybe there'll be some ideas that I can take from you in the, in the next hour or so that can help me close a deal. And, and Dan's been after a really nice big buck in, in Iowa, actually, too. So we're both kind of just just hoping to f- put the final pieces of the puzzle together. And yeah, I think you guys that, are in the promised land. We just need a, probably a little bit of help from Mother Nature. Yeah, exactly. That is the truth. Um, so here's something, you know, that whenever I think about the late season, I actually think, I don't mean this in a weird way, but I think about you, Neil. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> because because I talked to you a year or two ago about the late season hunting for an article I was working on. I think it was for Quality Whitetails magazine. Um, I'm not sure, but I think that was the magazine it was for. And I talked to you about some of your different ideas on the late season. And something you had mentioned in that conversation, I believe was that, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but I believe you had said that you would, if you had to choose, you would choose hunting in the late season over hunting in the rut. And that stuck with me as kind of profound. I guess for number one, is that accurate? Is that quote accurate? Um, before I go, absolutely. 100%. If, if you have the ability to work with a piece of ground or even, you know, even if you're not owning the piece or you, you have access to do some work on it, if you have the ability to put some time in, you know, kind of the thinking game and the strategy starts when we start to get through that whole rut mess. And and I, I chuckle is, you know, the rut, everybody's equal to the rut. You, it, it pretty much is grinding out the time in a tree and sooner or later, you know, you might be lucky enough for him to run by you or, you know, the buck you've been thinking about and dreaming about could be three miles away the day that you're out there Saturday morning hunting. Uh, so it, it's just such a lucky period of time. It could work for you or it could just totally blow up in your face. It, it drives me crazy on the managed properties I work with to help guys try to, to figure out how we're going to get them in the rut because you just need to sit in the tree, you know, and, and kind of hope. But when we get this late season period of time, you know, kind of this whole strategy session and designing the mousetrap of the property and strategic hunting of the piece and, and pressuring and non-pressuring areas, all this stuff can come together and, and start to kind of almost put the deer where you want them to be. And you have to have help from Mother Nature, but you can really start to develop a strategy and, and, and work an individual buck and, and 
you know, if he, if everything lines up, you can get it done in a couple of days. So for my personal hunting property, you know, forget about the rut. Yeah, I would, I would take, you know, we go as late as the middle of December here in New York this year, a little bit later in December 22nd, we finish up and I would give up November and just hunt that last four or five days of season. Now keep in mind, that's after we've had 65 days of hunting. Uh, so the deer are worn down, they're ground down, but, but there's some strategies you can put in place to, uh, you know, to get them out there, especially if you can plant and, and do things like that. You're giving us hope. This is good, Neil. <laughs> well, yeah, as it, it, I'm saying all this strategy thing, I was still lucky enough to, you know, get it done here in November and, and uh, pleasantly surprised when a big one walked by me and I was able to tag one. So it, it's, it's still nice right. <laughs> to have a, every so often they come marching by and you didn't have to think too hard. It just had to be in the right tree. Uh, so I'm still happy to take the... Uh, take the lucky portion of it but this this is where really i start to groove and, and get a kick out of hunting is this late season stuff yeah i've really started to see some of the same things with some of the properties i've been able to hunt where you know especially in those areas where you can find either low pressure areas within a property or if you actually control the property if you can control the pressure that's one of the things i've found makes such a profound difference to late season success but before we dive into into that or um any one specific aspect you you mentioned a whole bunch of different things there that kind of lead to success during the late season um so i'm kind of curious if we can set the table at the high level what would you say are the the high level ingredients for a perfect or for a great late season hunt and then if you can lay those couple categories out then i'm probably going to want to dive into each of those in more detail but i'm curious at the top what are the categories of things that we need to start thinking about to find that right hunt in the right place all right, so so probably the, the the greatest limiting factor. I'm always thinking of properties and limiting factor. What's going to jack up the program and screw it up, screw up for us? So, the greatest limiting factor for late season is 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 actually not the inventory of bucks. Because I'm always going to trust that bucks typically can. If you're dealing with four or five year olds, they usually are smart enough to get to that point, and you can almost kind of not guarantee they're going to be there come the end of the season, but likely they'll be there. But the greatest limiting factor for late in the year is to have the weather that's going to force them out of their holes that they've been hiding in for, in my case, 60 days of hunting season or other places, uh, to, to pour, you know, force them out and bring them out where they're going to be exposed to the gun or bow or whatever your tool is of late year. So that number one is weather. Uh, and for a lot of us this year, we are we are highly weather dependent this year. Uh, we, we are dealing with warm temperatures, and we'll get into that in detail and, and probably a little bit later on, but... Uh, we need to have some stuff, some temperatures that are going to burn some calories and force them to get out there. Uh, the second thing is we have to be able to control pressure and, uh, and, and try to get in a situation where we we at least know what everybody's doing and how they're playing the chessboard. Um, you know, even if guys are hunting, know what their play is so we can kind of play off of that in a predictable manner. You know, hunt, Bob does this in this corner of the property. We expect the deer to react this way, and, and we kind of know how to play off of him. So, you know, it's not necessarily no hunters in the woods, but understand that they're out there and what the impact is going to be. And then we have to rely on the deer and in the physical makeup of the deer as well. So is that buck still healthy? The rut is a grueling, mean process on a white-tailed buck, especially if there's other age in the neighborhood. He's liable to have, at this point in time, open abscesses from antler wounds and busted up legs and torn shoulders and broken jaws. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we're seeing in photos now, and my customers are killing deer that have just been pounded during the rut. You know, not to mention some hunting issues that can happen as well. 
that, that these deer are in some cases worn out. And, and if you know you're dealing with a worn out deer, that's going to change the way I'm going to react or, or, and try to adjust my hunting strategy versus a deer that's fat and happy on, you know, the last camera you pulled and looking to be in really good shape. Uh, they're going to behave a little bit differently in the late season as well. So all this stuff kind of marries and comes together in, you know, as well as the food sources in your neighborhood. So, you know, knowing what you were able to plant and do the hard work in, in May or June in the food plot season, the type of food sources you're able to put in the ground and kind of score for late in the year will dictate how that late season hunting is going to be. So all that stuff kind of comes together and, and you juggle those variables to determine whether or not you're going to have some success late in the year or not. So one of the first things you mentioned, Neil, was weather. And yep. that is, I think, you know, a lot of people would agree 100% one of the very most important variables to late season success. And like you mentioned, it's been pretty warm throughout a lot of parts of the country. Yep. Um, so let's dive into that first. You know, when it comes to the late right. season, what kind of weather are we looking for? Um, and how do we take advantage of that? Yep. So, so you know, I'm watching this stuff really closely it's to the point of, we finished out the month, and I'll tell you, from my region of the country where I'm, where I'm currently sitting right now, you know, I'm in a, a parking lot in a little bitty town getting ready to guide some, some of the hunters or the client I work for on their late season hunt, their last couple of days of hunting. And I'm tuned into the point that I know that the temperatures for the last 30 days have been 7.7 degrees above normal. And it, it may not sound like a big deal, but the whitetail have had to burn a significant amount of less calories to stay warm. And what that's going to result, and you can see this in the skinning shed, what that's going to result in is we have phytophot contents that are higher than they were last year, the year before, the year before that. So I have deer that are relatively full, they're fat, and they're not it's worn down, or for that matter, they're not even close to where they are on average. Uh, and now this is a perfect storm of deer not wanting to come to a food plot. You need to have a deer that's kind of worn down a little bit for this late season hunt to come together. And, you know, I, I, four or five years ago, we started looking at this. I really was of the opinion that, hey, it didn't really matter so much that you had a bumper crop of acorns all September, October, and November in your property. If you could get December snows to pile up a little bit or four or five days of below average temperatures, your deer would come to the food plots. And I think... That was, I was on the cusp of kind of understanding what was going on there, but the bottom line is it'll bring them to the plot a little bit, but if they're going to consistently get to the plot, especially in states where they have pretty high hunting pressure, you need to have a deer that's kind of worn down. The fat content is worn down some, and it's, they don't have the luxury of kind of hanging back and not eating for a couple of days. They need to go and, and consume the food in the good locations and, and then head back and, you know, get back to the bush. And, and those circumstances we see a lot of these you know, and I'm not talking about two year old bucks showing up on a food plot parading around or yearling bucks, but I'm talking about the fours and the fives and the seven year olds that are in out there that really know how to play the game. When they're worn down then we see them showing up in the plots quite a bit. And it's not unfortunately it's not a couple of days of weather. So where I personally am and where a lot of us are this year, you're seven, eight, ten degrees above normal for the last thirty days. If you've been paying attention to those kind of things, uh, the fat content's really probably higher than, than what you would hope for on those deer. And if you're looking at the 10-day forecast and going, hey, there's a couple days of a little bit below average temperatures, maybe we get a little bit of snow, uh, what it was likely to take for you to have that significant feeding event that you, you know, call in sick from work and, 
and, and charge out to the woods, it's probably going to take a good bit of snow covering for three or four days to cover up a lot of those easy access foods and then force them into the, the high concentration foods. Uh, so it's, it's, we're, we're kind of in a tricky position for a lot of people on especially the East Coast and kind of the central part of the country this year in terms of whether we're going to get the deer to come out if the weather's going to cooperate for us or not. And we'll get that kind of that mass movement where things are, uh, are a little bit easy on the hunting side. So one of the big things, and this is, you know, kind of just re-saying what you said there, but one of the major um, points that I focus on a lot during the late season is my timing and, and you know, not pressuring those deer at all until timing is just right during the late season. And a massive amount of that correct timing is related to getting this weather event, like you mentioned, that will push these deer out early before dark into some type of food source. Um, And so a lot of my hunting this time of year is doing just what you mentioned, watching the forecast, waiting for that event, and then, you know, taking off work or whatever to make sure I hunt on that day or whatever it might be. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about those specific conditions, but I want to first what happens if you don't get that? Like what happens if I have a week of vacation or whatever it might be, or a guy has a gun, the gun season is open December 1st through 6th or whatever. And it's 45 or 50 degrees the whole week and no significant event. I mean, what do you do in that type of situation when you, you want to hunt? This is your chance to hunt, but you just don't have those correct weather conditions. Are you of the mind that you say just, still don't hunt just you have to wait it out and maybe you only get one hunt the rest of the year or would is there some other option when the weather isn't ideal in the late season all right so we're, we've been playing a lot with formulas and you know, I, I do work with some outfitters and we're, we're trying to balance pressure versus results okay so we've been playing and tweaking these formulas uh this time of year late season deer that are not rut driven uh and, and keep in mind too we're, we're not we're saying they're pretty well done with the rut uh, if your fawns reach 68, 70 pounds, they're going to come into asterisk. So a lot of those doe fawns can come into asterisk. Those that weren't bred the first time can cycle in later. So while we're all sitting back here saying it's 50 degrees, don't go hunting, it's a small percentage. It might be 10 or 15% of your does aren't currently bred. That could fire up and bring the big guy out at any minute, and you could shoot him on a 60-degree day. So there is a, still a little bit of, of kind of uh, Las Vegas luck ahead of us as a potential. It's not, you know, hey, let's shut the season off and not go. But if we're strictly, you know, forget about that lucky variable of a possible estrus, though, go back to the feeding window. If we have fat, happy deer uh, and we have temperatures that have been running 5, 10 degrees above normal, the frequency of hunt that I'm advising my clients is they can hunt for about two days and they better pull out of the woods and give it about a seven-day rest. Uh, and, and even these are big pieces. These are 500-acre pieces, 1,000-acre pieces. Put a couple days on them and then give them a break to try to keep it as fresh as possible and be extremely strategic like you're talking about in terms of the weather and the wind and, and trying to pick the days when they might be uh, feel a little bit fresher to show up a little bit earlier or, or, or things of that nature. So, you know, the cooler days are the days you're going to try to go out. We're, we're really this time of year limiting our morning hunting pressure just to try to, you know, take one more shift off the fields or one more shift off the properties just slipping out in the evening when it's a little bit more of a concentration and feeding uh, environment. So uh, those are the type of strategies we're doing. In uh, in our last book we put out, we referred to it as kind of a drone drone hunting. We were kind of taking an analogy out of the military. And, and this time of year is where you, you, you almost envision the drone is circling. I'm gathering camera footage. I'm, you know, hopefully we're in a state where wireless cameras are available to us. 
you're getting that wireless input to your cell phone, so you're not putting pressure on your deer, or you're checking your cameras every seven to ten days, you know, middle of the day, total low pressure, trying not to get in the middle of bedding areas, and you're watching and watching, and you're looking for a buck to show some kind of vulnerability. At the same time, you're watching the next 10-day weather forecast. I'm, you know, up at 4 o'clock in the morning every morning looking at the weather forecast. My wife thinks I'm crazy. You have it memorized by now. Well, I'm just trying to see, and hopefully it's going to get cold. And, you know, I've got a couple good bucks I'm trying to wear down in our place here. Uh, so you're, you're saying, man, I'm just looking for that, that change, that weather for, uh, forecast change that's going to start to set up. We're going to change the schedule a little bit and try to get to the woods. But, um, you know, a long way around the block on that, it's, it's, you, get, you really have to measure the pressure and, and really start to look at things this time of year, and you have to figure out how much pressure you can put on it. On a weather window, unlike we're having right now, where the temperatures are 5, 10 degrees below normal, we've got blowing snow, we've got blizzard conditions, it's been snow-covered for four or five days straight, seven days straight, and the deer getting beat up with wind chills and stuff like that, you can almost grind it. You know, you can grind, in some cases, grind a, a, a field, over and over and over again, uh, even in a situation, say, standing corn or something like that, just putting a ton of pressure on it, and they're just going to keep on coming because they have to. Um, and you can really get a good opportunity that way. Not that you can't get down out of the tree and spook all the deer off the field every night, but if you're sensible about it, try to you know chip away at the corners a little bit, you can get some really good hunting in. But this is not one of those years where you can manhandle a piece of property. Yeah, so I got a, I got a quick question, and sorry to interrupt, Mark, but... Okay, so we're talking about this late season type of hunting and, you know, they're focusing on the bed to uh, food source pattern, right? So if the weather is not – if the weather may not scream get in the tree stand and sit on this field edge of this this food source or this food plot, are you telling any of your clients to take your stand and get back further in the woods to to catch them in a staging area or maybe a travel route? Yeah, Dan, you know, great, great, great input on that. And and here's where we got to watch our cameras. So if our cameras are showing some good deer, the frequency I'm looking for, let's say we take a seven-day window, and, and I have a shooter buck showing up four out of the seven days in front of the camera, I'd say that, that's high frequency. So I'm really pretty pumped about that level of use. Because you got to believe he's coming to the field at other locations as well, not just past your camera. Uh, if he's showing up at 2 or 3 in the morning every time, you know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, 4 or 5 hours after dark, I'd probably say he is just hunkered so tight and he's just not going to be anywhere even close to that field edge or within 200 yards of it when I can still get, uh, you know, have legal shooting light. If he's an hour after dark, if he's a half hour after dark, he's just on the edge of twilight and, and I'm getting photos like that, then we're going to take a real hard look at it, uh, it, it possibly moving on them. Now, now here's another variable. So most of my clients own ground or they're playing on leases that they have long-term. And, and we have back here in the east a relatively competitive hunting environment. So I may be working with a 300-acre piece of ground, and there's, you know, 100 acres or three or 400-acre pieces that enjoy it. So there's lots of potential tags and lots of potential hunters in the woods. And one of the things I work with my clients is say, you know, when we're dealing with, with quality deer, deer of age, it's a long chest match, and it doesn't have to necessarily end at the conclusion of this season. So when we're growing deer year after year, we get to know them. We might hunt them for two or three years uh, before we finally get a chance to have, you know, the moon and stars line up and we connect with them. 
But one thing that can change that absolutely is is when my property and my properties are packed with guys with rifles around the edges right now. You know, they're kind of a, a perceived there's a lot of good deer in there, and they they work our edges hard. If I bump him out of a bedroom, uh, one, he's definitely not showing up the food block because I came too close to him, and two, if I move him too far, he's dead. Uh, because I'm, you know, the deer is within three, four hundred yards of a property line. If he skips across that thing, he's just not going to get back. So you do have to run. You have to know your neighborhood and know what you can get away with. And in some cases, believe it or not, I've had years where I say, you know what, guys, uh, he's going to be bigger next year. And that can be a very difficult scenario if you're looking at five days left in the season going, oh, man, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fold up my tent and, and, and give up on this year. But sometimes if you're really trying to, to cultivate that one buck and, and you want to have them for another year of playing chess, you, sometimes you have to back off them and just say it's just not going to happen this year. And I've done it a bunch and, and swallowed the tags, and these are all pieces that you manage. Now, if you're in a public land hunt, if you're in a permission to hunt situation, you don't know what your access is, yeah, totally different scenario. Go for it. You know, go in and try to make it happen. But but I err on the side of caution. I just don't want to bump these deer or pressure these deer. And, and right now, with the weather conditions the way that they are, for that matter, it's it's not even so much as it's just warmer this year. It's if you bump a five-year-old buck or six-year-old buck now post-breeding season when he's not goofy, if you bump him, he's going to be significantly changing his patterns for you know the next five to seven days. Not saying he's not going to kill him the next day, but but he's just not going to tolerate that pat that pressure too well. And and especially get out of the Midwest and go to areas with a little bit more hunting pressure. You know, those deer are going to affect and, and change quite a bit, and I'm real reluctant to, to bounce them or, or get too close to them. So I, I like your idea, uh, but I just would like to try to make sure we're going to, one, give that bedding area a little bit of room, and then just, two, know if we're, we're really willing to pressure and maybe, maybe run the risk of running them off the property and not seeing them again. It's a fine line you have to walk, isn't it? It's it's kind of a tightrope, yeah, and I, I probably err on the side of caution too much, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm we're... we're Let's you know we're killing deer that are five, six, seven years of age uh, in in properties that one they're too small to typically do that, and two we're in areas of the country where there's really high hunting pressure. So um, we have to be real cautious in those areas to get that kind of uh, those kind of results. So so Neil, one of the important distinctions I think you made was the difference between hunting on a scenario where you have control of the property, like a lease, or you own the ground versus being on public or private and how different those two scenarios are and how different your mindset needs to be. Um, And I'm in one of the situations similar to the latter where I have permission on a piece of private ground, but other people can hunt it. And I've got the shotgun season here opening in Iowa in four days. I know a lot of people are going to be hunting it. So it does require a little bit more of the aggressive tactics, maybe like Dan mentioned or something totally different. Um, but it's just a really important point that I want to emphasize to everyone out there is that, you know, keep in mind what your specific scenario might mean and why you might want to be a little bit more aggressive versus a little more passive and, and careful. If you have that control, like you mentioned, Neil, I think erring on the side of caution is definitely the way to go. Um, but back to something we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, when it comes to this weather, these conditions that help you know when to go in and strike, like you mentioned, I love that drone strike analogy, by the way. I've borrowed that. I really like that one. Um, what, <laughs> how, much, how much of a temperature drop or how much snow on the ground do you believe you need to trigger a significant feeding event? All right. So here, here's what I've kind of, and 
every year this time of year we're getting our first snow in this part of the world. So we have the first snow covering, and I'll get a, a million texts from my clients that are out saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be a great morning this morning. They all get back at 11 o'clock and say we didn't see a deer. Uh, the first snows of the year, generally outside of the route, I'm finding deer to be incredibly paranoid and not moving at all. Uh, and, it, it, you know, you've got to take it from their perspective. They've been probably being ground down a little bit with hunting season, and now they're incredibly exposed. So I'm not seeing a lot of good movement the first snow. Give it about 36 hours worth of snow covering, and, you know, it's all systems normal, and they're right back doing what they do. So I'm not a big fan of the first day of the snow, but a day and a half after that first snow, I'm really starting to look at it. Temperature-wise, we're just looking at normal temperatures. I think you boil down to if it's normal temperatures or below, and I like to get 10, 15 degrees below normal with some wind, I mean, some raw stuff where it's going to beat you up in the tree. Uh, those are the kind of temperatures where we're, we're getting good deer to show up. And and it's not, oftentimes it's not just a, a quick little front blows through. And you can certainly play the game of hunting fronts, the deer feeding during the front, post front, after the front, that kind of thing. But what we're talking about here is the weather conditions that kind of force them to feed during daylight hours. And there's a scenario where it's cold and the deer are burning too much energy to feed at night when the nighttime temperatures are plummeting and you got lots of wind and snow. Keep in mind, you know, when a deer is laying down and it closes the vents in its body, the vents being its, its kind of its groin area and its armpits, and, and those are the areas where it loses the vast majority of the heat. It can lay down for two or three days or, you know, a couple of days and burn less calories than it can walking out to the cornfield to try to consume food. So uh, it, they will go for that day or two lay down if they have to, but at some point they really start to get ginned up to go to food if that weather is, again, 5, 10 degrees below normal. And whatever your normal might be, I've got clients that say, you know, 45 degrees is normal for them, so when it's 35 degrees, you know, we're in that perfect storm. In my part of the world... This time of year, I'm typically looking at temperatures, you know, below 20 degrees, preferably in the low to mid-teens at night and, and just kind of foul and nasty. And that type of scenario is going to trigger deer and bring them in. i give you a, a quick little story from last year. So last year, we had that bumper crop of acorns that everybody talks about. They're like marbles on the forest floor. And, and I couldn't buy a deer to come to the cornfields or any of the brassica plots. I mean, you guys getting some camera photos, but camera photos are about 25% of what they usually are. We're having, you know, deer census meetings at camp going, hey, geez, do we even want to shoot those this year? We're not seeing anything. Where have all the deer gone? So, you know, the neighbors are all in panic. We're kind of trying not to be seasoned and say, you know, it's just a blip with acorns, but in the back of our mind going, where have all the deer gone? And it's, a terrible bow season, eat tag, you know, there's no chance of shooting anything big for a decent. Uh, even the luck of the ride, it doesn't happen. Roll around to this late season window. We're into December of last year. The muzzleloader season kicks in. That's, that's mid-December. And finally, the temperatures drop, and we picked up 12 inches of snow. Uh, I waited a day and a half. I actually canceled a couple road trips, got back home, and, and within three days of that snow being on the ground, the property went from having five or six deer showing up on the standing cornfield. My granted pressure had been low to now there's eight or nine bucks showing up with 15 to 20 does in the field is full and there's age there. You know, I was able to tag a great buck uh, that, that late season window. The next night went back and tagged a bear. And then the, then the temperatures changed and the snow melted and it went right back to four or five, six deer in the food plot. Just, you know, primarily fawns and it was just a social thing. They went to the field to kind of hang out, dance around a little bit. 
but they weren't going for the work of feeding. And it was it, in that case, it took that eight, ten inches of snow, that little weather event, and it was literally a three or four day weather event. And then as soon as it melted, it was over. And I watched, of course, the cameras postseason. And for that matter, that entire year, because they were so full of fat from the acorn crop that we had, it took significant snows in February to put them in the corn. Uh, and, you know, at mild weathers that we had, even January, February, no one's been in the woods for a month and a half. The deer still weren't hitting those fields the way that I would have expected them to. They were just, you know, obviously in really good body condition. And that goes back, you know, we were talking about body condition before. Uh, my clients, on a whole, when we see a deer that's got a significant limp or, you know, it's got some kind of issue going on right now from fighting or other things, uh, we're batting probably about 95% to harvest that deer on a energy-packed food source like a carbohydrate like corn or dried soybeans, things like that. We're batting probably 95% to harvest that deer in the next couple weeks. And, and they're, when they're kind of getting beat up and they're trying to repair their body, we do extremely well uh, harvesting those deer, you know, uh, when, when they get to that point. Uh, it's... it's uh, I've had two or three of them that showed up just in the, in the last couple of days with customers that, you know, Buck, we've been chasing for two or three years, and then finally we got them, and oh, by the way, you know, somebody poked an antler in his rear end, and, uh, and he was a little bit beat up, and finally he showed up during daylight hours. Hmm. Kind of on this, on this similar topic a little bit, you know, we're talking about weather and snow and things like that, how that might push these late season, this late season action up. Do you give any credence to tracking things like barometric pressure or the moon setting, rising phases, anything like that? Does that have any effect in your mind on uh, when would be a good time to hunt at this time of year? I'm watching it, watching it pretty close. So I'm, I'm trying really hard to marry that type of lunar stuff that's out there. And that's, we call that observational science versus the hard science that's being done, say, through the Quality Deer Management Association, where they have GPS collars on deer and they have, you know, scientists that, that in a lot of cases aren't hunters, you know, watching deer doing their thing and, and translating that data. So you have two different schools of thought the observational science of the moon rising and falling and barometric uh, pressures and all that. They're, there's a lot of good deer getting killed that way. But if you were to look at the Jeep, a lot of the GPS data that's out there and they really try to objectively evaluate it, there's not a whole lot of scenarios there that are affecting too much the way deer move. Um, so catching it with the moons in the sky and that kind of thing in the feeding, I'm, I'm conscious of it, in, but I'm not basing my sole hunting strategy around it. I'm really more towards kind of the more the now of the weather and things. Not probably not that much of a moon guy. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's been one of those things this year that both Dan and I have been trying to learn more about and asking all the various people we talk to about. And it's interesting. I think we're hearing more and more. Um, I think that's probably the most common way that people look at it is uh, weather seems to be you know first and foremost what's really going to make things happen, but. Things like the moon, pressure, there might be some ancillary effects that are interesting to pay attention to and see what might happen. So, you know, the, the neat part about that is we're, we call, you know, we're, we're the modern hunter now. We have technology and information available to us that, that no other generation of hunters have had. Uh, in, in the next five years, the, the question that you had is probably going to be answered pretty darn well with science. So, we're on the cusp of understanding a lot of those things and what they mean to deer and 
and uh, it's a pretty fun time to try to observe and learn and, and in some cases change your opinion. There's some stuff that I was convinced of, and you know, I'm kind of dialed into this stuff. I was convinced of five or six years ago that it's been turning its head in the last couple of years going, oh, geez, you know, um, I guess uh, I, I guess if that science really disproved that, that was kind of observational lifestyle type thing. Yeah. So some of that stuff is really changing, you know, almost on a, on a, on a yearly basis. There are some fascinating studies, like you mentioned. We had uh, we had Matt Ross from the QDMA on the show a few weeks ago, and he shared some recent studies that were you know similar to what you said, kind of upturned some of our assumptions about deer behavior and things like that. And it's interesting, like you said, uh, to see what some of this hard data can show, um, but also like also like you mentioned. Um, Lots of times these are these studies are conducted maybe by non hunters and maybe there's a little bit of, you know, different interpretations you can take on some of this, but if nothing else, it's fascinating. Um and it's another interesting piece of data to put in the hopper as you try to start making these decisions. Um so we've talked about this drone strike idea, which is, you know, something that I like to think about the entire year, you know, especially October and December is that time frame that, you know, making this type of drone strike Part one is knowing the right timing. Part two is knowing where to be. And a big part of knowing where to be during the late season, as we've talked about, is food. What do you think or what, in your opinion, are the best food sources to be keying in on at this time of year? Both if you can control food on your property with food plots or crops or something like that, and then on the alternative, if you don't have the ability to have that kind of man-made food source, what kind of natural food sources should we be keying in on if there isn't anything food plot or ag field related? Let's start with natural just so I'm liable to go off crazy on the food plot type thing. So if I start with the natural foods, uh, I'm looking for native foods. I'm looking for brushy, overgrown, weedy, grassy fields with shrubs in them and brambles and briar patches in them and things like that. So uh, it's it's those thick little pockets of brush. And, and if you're to evaluate the available food breaker in that stuff in September, you're going to have, you might have two or 3,000 pounds of edible breaker in that, that environment to a white-tailed deer. I mean, that's the same thing as you would get out of a, a cloverfield, for goodness sake. Uh, in those brush environments. So post first frost, it starts to dwindle down a little bit. We get this time of year, it's dwindling down again, but it's probably still head and shoulders above what we're going to find in your woodlots unless you're dealing with acorns. You know, I think probably everybody kind of gets the acorns. They're, hey, if we got acorns laying in the ground, go hunt. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of the magic bean of the deer world that they're going to be, you know, keep on working. But those brushy fields are where I'm really going to key in. And I get a lot of deer in those grassy open areas this time of year. I'm seeing a lot of deer in them, and I think they're also going to a spot that guys aren't putting much pressure on it. You don't see a lot of people kind of hunting those overgrown, grassy, dogwood areas uh, too much and, and, you know, camping out on them. And there's a really unique place that I've had a chance to spend some time hunting uh, back here in my home state, and we've got a couple of great big tower blinds, uh, and we can literally watch from two tower blinds, like 800 acres worth of area. And these are, you know, 10 years ago they were planted cornfields and they've been allowed to go fallow. And it was a real big eye-opener to watch the amount of deer that used these fields, even up into the December period, for bedding. Uh, they got out of the woods and got the heck away from any potential hunting pressure was there. They got to areas where they're very visible. They can kind of detect danger coming from a, a long distance with the eyes, and they got the whole nose thing going. They got a lot of escape patterns. But we could watch them. You might be, you know, watching a 100-acre section of this, this grass and brush, and then, 
at 3.30, you haven't seen a deer all day, you know, seven bucks stand up at 3.30, you're going, where in the world did they come from? You know, they're just kind of burrowed in that grass, they stand up, eat some forbs, and dig down and through there, get some good stuff. And in this particular scenario, there's some food plots involved. So eventually, they would typically drift to the food plots. And having watched a deer in that natural environment and then the food plot environment, all kind of, from all, you might be watching a deer from three quarters of a mile away, um, they're hitting the food plots maybe maybe 30% of the nights that they're up on their feet before they got to the plot. Um, and in some cases, they're only 200 yards from the plot, so you'd have no chance of getting in between them and the plot. But uh, but it, it's really interesting to see. So I'd look for the natural vegetation that way. If we get out of the natural vegetation, go back to the ag side of things, when it's a little bit warmer um, than, than kind of that cold, you know, 10 degrees below normal that we're looking for, a little bit warmer like we're having now, uh, I have lots of reports coming in of guys doing extremely well on, uh, like, a winter wheat right now, a clover. So they're on greens. They're still consuming proteins. And they're they're working protein pretty well. Of course, brassicas, uh, like forge rapes and stuff like that, are, are still doing extremely well. Uh, so those are kind of the key food sources that we're seeing deer on. And it kind of goofs up a lot of people's hunting strategy because you're usually not centering that late season stuff in and around their clover field. But they, they're doing really well right now. Um, all bets are off if the temperatures drop. Uh, especially with frozen ground, I'm not seeing a lot of deer using frozen clover fields. So usually if it gets down and we get you know good below freezing temperatures for a day or two, they tend to get off of that frozen vegetation, get something a little bit easier to consume. The next favored thing, let's go back to a little bit more of a normal year, dried soybeans. Dried soybeans, uh, I think, are, is about head and shoulders of upstanding corn. Uh, I see those soybean fields typically, all things being equal, getting consumed before deer will go to corn. Uh, and they're, they're, they're usually hitting them that late November, December period, and for that matter, for as long as those beans are available. And as the weather really starts to sock in, then they transition to corn. So the corn's kind of the, the third level of food that they would be going to. And about the same time they're hitting corn, you know, your turnips are starting to kick in. Turnip by nature, I don't think, is very attractive to deer. I think, uh, you know, all of this whole starch to sugar thing is happening. They are getting sweet. And uh, I think bottom line is everything else is getting consumed and, you know, getting frosted away. And, and all of a sudden they're looking pretty good because everything else is brown and wilted and dead. And now it's time to eat turnips. But that can also be a really good late season food. So we look for those to come into their own in, in early shape or in, in, in good shape here pretty quick. Guys in Ohio and Iowa where you're going to be, I'm finding them having a heck of a time getting to the turnips in a warm year like this uh, just because the deer densities aren't high enough and they're not pressured for the food. If they're in a high deer density area and they're really looking, seeking food, then you know what, you can do really well on a turnip patch in the next couple of days. But, um, but I'm really thinking the warm weather it is, clovers may not be a bad bet right now. All right, now I know you're enjoying what Neil's been sharing so far, but we do need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Ozonics. And Ozonics units are one product that we get a ton of questions about, as a lot of people are curious how this little machine hung in a tree can actually control your human odor. So today we've got the founder of Ozonics, Dr. Scott Elrod, to explain exactly how an Ozonics machine works. Here's Scott. Sure. I mean, the, the, the reason why the device, the HR200, is not the secret. The secret is the oxidation process that's created by ozonics. We basically take regular air, suck it up into the unit through the fan, 
it is then passed through a coil system, which then turns kind of a bright blue or purple. And that's really the color of ozone. And it then propels it into the air. And so literally millions and millions of molecules are put into the airstream. And so wherever any odor or bacteria is in the air, those molecules cluster all, all over the surface of it and break the bonds down around whatever's in the air. And once it's broken down, it basically changes the molecular code. And the molecular code then becomes neutralized. And the more molecules are touch it, the more it gets broken down. But the fact is, is what, whatever is in the air, okay, you know, I always use the example of a skunk. You know, you've been somewhere and you smelled a skunk, but you couldn't see a skunk, so you knew, you knew where a skunk was there. But fear the same way. And so they recognize human odor. Well, when ozone is put out there and you smell a skunk and then you place the ozonics unit out there, whatever's in the air, that olfactory code, we call that ozonics, that olfactory code of the skunk, is attached to by an ozone molecule, an O3 molecule, it breaks the bonds of that molecular code. And so once that happens, once a single break happens in that molecular code, it is no longer a skunk anymore. That code is something different. And the same thing happens in the in the field. The human odor that we cast, whatever it may be, and science has been trying to identify the human olfactory code for years, and it has never been identified. But ozone attacks that molecular structure and neutralizes it in the process of hunting. So there you go. And if you'd like to learn more about Ozonics machines and how exactly they work, you can learn more at ozonicshunting.com. And now, let's get back to the show. Interesting. Uh, now, you laid out several different scenarios there based on different conditions and which food source might be the ideal one. What if I'm the kind of guy who I've got a 40-acre piece or 100 acres behind my house or whatever it is, and I've got one food plot that I can set aside as a late season food plot. Maybe it's an acre, half an acre, acre and a half, something like that. Relatively small food plot. And I can only have one late season spot. What is your choice for that one late season food plot that would give me the, the greatest breadth of opportunity across the late season? All right. I'm going to try to double dip always. <laughs> I'm going <try> <laughs> to really try to squeeze as much out of it as I can. So I'd like you to explore and wrap your head around the possibility of putting an electric fence around that field. As goofy as that might sound, if we're doing small acreage plantings, spend a little bit of money, put an electric fence around it, keep the deer out of it until you want it late in the year. Because keep in mind, if you plant a one-acre cornfield, there's 5,000 pounds of kernel in there. That can be blown up and used up in, in 30 or 45 days worth of hunting. You know, because when the deer, when the corn dries down, deer start to use it. And by the time we get to right now, December, there's nothing left, so they're not using it. So really, if you're open to the idea, put an electric fence around the field. And if you're willing to do that, I take an awful hard look at planting soybeans. Um, I'm real high in planting soybeans during the summer. I wish I could put the deer in and let them feed on them, but they're going to use them up too much. If that's the case, let the beans get up mature. We get all the bean pods. And sometime, depending on the type of bean you're planting, in the late August period of time, you know, those bean scars start to dry down and turn you actually can go out there, broadcast in a brassica or a turnip right over top of those beans with a hand broadcaster. As the leaves fall off the beans and we start to get some, you know, some sunlight to the ground, guess what? That stuff's going to germinate and come up underneath. And in some cases, you can get two crops out of one with, with limited amount of soil disturbance and have 
say, 3,000 pounds of beans sitting there, plus an understory of admittedly small kind of young brassica, but you've got some greens underneath there pretty, uh, is good shape. You, you would drop the fence if you're trying to target it. I mean, you're talking, you know, two weeks before hunting, before you really wanted to get that late season hunt kick in and, uh, and try to put the deer in there if you're willing to do that. If you don't want to do the, the, the kind of that fence idea, then look at planting something that's going to be, if you're in a relatively high deer number, something that's not attractive to them. And I'm going to go back to like a turnip mix. Some of these radishes that are out there, probably not that attractive in the tuber form. Plant some of it, uh, and, and chances are your deer will leave enough of it alone that's going to be there late, there, late in the year. Watch your brassicas. You know, we've been planting them for years on properties, and the first three or four years, deer stay away from them until we get that snow pile up for late season, and then all of a sudden they develop a taste for it. They eat it as soon as it comes out of the ground. Uh, so we're seeing that happen in some of the smaller plantings as well. When it comes to things, and I'm real high on corn for late in the year, when it comes to corn, unless we have a super low deer density, unless we can keep the deer out of it somehow, I'm not a big fan of planting, you know, one-acre cornfields and things like that. They just get used up too much. I'm kind of typically in my mind thinking a minimum of two acres, two and a half acres of corn. But back to your original question, if you had 40 or 50 acres, you need to plan for this possible scenario, maybe some carbohydrates in the form of corn or beans, and then, you know what, you need to have a border of clover around the thing just in case it happens to stay warm like it is right now, and, and maybe you strip plant some brassica in there, and you have a little bit of a little bit of variety, a little bit of everything to make sure you cater to whatever the weather's going to offer for that year. So uh, with, when I'm working with clients, there's five or six tools. I kind of went through the top tool plants that we use. There's five or six tools that we use for late in the year. And even if I'm doing a small piece of ground, I make sure that all those tools are available just in case the weather's going, you know, cold or it's going to be warm. So we have a little bit of variability and we're not sunk if the weather turns one way or another and we're not prepared for it. Something you mentioned there, and I'm kind of, you probably kind of already answered what I'm going to ask you, but I just want to rephrase this question. Um, as I've talked to different people when it comes to thinking through food plots and what you plant, there seems to be a couple different schools of thought. I hear some people that like to plant, you know, a pure food plot, one thing in a certain area, and they know that that certain food plot, because of what's planted there, let's say it's just a straight clover field, they know that because of, they know what it is, and they know when deer prefer to hit it, they know, okay, during this part of the season or during this, these types of conditions, I hunt here. And then they have a different separate spot that, they, that this is going to be the late season plot because it's just brassicas. And so this school of thought Ooh. has separate plots of one thing, and they know that to hunt here with this condition, hunt here with that condition. The second school of thought is more in line with the type of the, the scenario you just mentioned there where you put together some type of plot that should be consistently attracting deer throughout the entire season. Maybe it's a mixture of clover and brassicas, like you mentioned, or strips of soybeans and winter wheat or whatever it is. Um, and then that develops a consistent pattern regardless of the time of the season. Do you have a preference? Do you like to always have all of your food plots be a combo that keeps them coming all year? Or do you ever do straight plantings where you know that it'll be dead during the winter, but great in early season? I don't know. What are your thoughts absolutely. on those two things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, now you're getting into the real science of, we call that deerscaping, you know, laying out the property landscaping for deer. Uh, so before we get into the deerscaping conversation, it, we've talked in the past about this, but I'm a huge kind of wind is the key to doing everything in a property. And, and so when I'm first looking at a piece of property, I have on the table, maybe we're going to put kind of, we'll call them feeding destination areas, and we might have the multiple crop system, or I might be doing strip plots 
you know, scattered and clovers go here and brassicas go here. So I might be using one of those two tools. And what drives me to make that decision is uh, hunter access, number one. If I have a couple spots where the hunters can get to, super low pressure, and they can, you know, best case in the world, they walk up over a ridge, a ravine, and they hop up just barely visible, and they can see an open field, or they can build an open field that's there. I said, man, we've got a tremendous situation, especially if it was favorable for west or northwest winds, which you typically get late in the year. This is an ideal location for a big destination feeding area. You know, maybe the scent from that tree stand blows out over top of a road or blows across a river or blows out into an open hay field or something like that where deer aren't expected to come from. You know, those are perfect scenarios to throw everything but the kitchen sink at them. Uh, so that's kind of going to be wind-dependent, or in that case, hunter-dependent, if they can get to and from it. Uh, the other thing, if we go back to the winds, if we have areas where the winds are very consistent for 360 degrees worth of hunting, by that I mean hilltops. So flatland guys are planting more strategic where they put, you know, a clover plot up here in the north end, and we put a brassica plot over here in the west end, and they don't worry so much about this whole swirling wind that I'm talking about. But if you're in hill country like I am, uh, we, we really focusing on what the wind's going to do, if it's going to be steady and true or if it's going to be very turbulent on the backside of a hill uh, based on the time of the year, uh, and, and we plan accordingly. So in those environments, I'd say, well, we get a lot of south winds first part of bow season, so the areas where the winds are going to be steady and true, I plant my clovers in those locations. Uh, I might even plant some peas in those locations, super attractive early in the year, and then they eat it off the dirt and curds, there's nothing left. And, and then they focus on another food plot. They go to a different part of the property. And maybe they're transitioning to a part of the property that's a little more conducive to hunt during the westerly winds or northwesterly winds. So we can kind of almost by the season and by the wind direction lead them toward the most productive spots to hunt based on wind currents and based on their food preference. So there's, there's a real science to trying to figure out what you were just asking about. And every property is going to be a little bit differently, but they're a little bit different. But the variables that I first look at are going to be, can I get the hunter to and from that location? And then, two, what's the wind scenario going to be? How consistent is it going to be? Uh, if I look back to our research center, I, I say research center, I mean, it's, it's where my dad and I hunt, and, and we've done a lot of habitat research and written books about the place. But the you know, bottom line is, you know, this time of year, it's, it's our hunting camp. It's not the research center. Uh, there's one spot up on top of the hill where I had pretty good access. I could get to it. I could get away from it. And it was literally, you know, a six-year plan for me. I created sanctuary. I created bedding cover all in the proper locations to kind of get the deer used to laying in certain areas. And, and I bit the bullet and, and actually hired a dozer and brought them in. And we, we cleared five acres worth of oak woods and, you know, and piling up white oaks and oaks and everything else because I had the perfect scenario for a food plot to be able to build up there that no matter what the wind direction was, I could hunt it. I could come at it from the outside edges. And we, you know, it take 20 years of doing this kind of stuff and build the perfect mousetrap. And in that case, I have clover planted there right now. I have some winter wheat that was planted in there. Uh, I have ample amount of corn. I don't do beans because I'm too high of elevation. I have a 2,200 feet elevation. The beans really don't grow very well. But I have everything but the kitchen sink on that particular spot pick up and move outside of that uh, where it's easy for me to hunt and I go to a spot that's only good during south winds and I'm literally just planting clovers in that location. I don't want the deer going there late in the year. I'm hoping it gets covered up by snow and by default they go from being able to eat you know, 15 acres of food plots to seven by the time we get to this late season hunt. 
uh, and it happens to be the spot that worked for me for access and, and width. Wow, so there's there's definitely a lot to that thought process. That's yeah, in, in short. It's, well, it's it's pretty yeah, put it together. I mean, it's it's if you're if you you know can kind of work your way through the wind thing, you, you take a clear transparency, put an aerial photograph down, and, and sketch on the transparency where the winds are steady and true, and put red X's where the wind's really nasty, and then you lay another transparency, you know, clear sheet over top of it. Here's how we walk to our stands, and lay another transparency over, and you can kind of build this whole layer thing and. And, and it doesn't take long studying that that way. You say, oh, wow, there's, I could actually plant this one here, and that's good for south winds, and I'll plant early season food and something that gets used up. I mean, you can, you can work a piece of property that way if you're working with a piece. Yeah, I love that chess aspect of putting a property together like that. That's, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Um, Dan, I know that you have got to bounce pretty shortly. Do you have a last question for Neil before we lose you? Yeah, um, and it's kind of uh, taking a 360 turn here, and it, it's kind of talking about management uh, from a management level. And let's say you have a food source, right? It's kind of a hard winter, and, and we all know that deer kind of group up in numbers and they attack the available foods, the you know the the easiest available food source in this late season, and then they move on to the next one, or uh, you know, the, or the snow melts, and then they can go back into the timber. How do you? How do you get an accurate number of how many deer are supposed to be on your property and and it um and how do you plan for that particular food source knowing that there could be instances where you know you may have the only food plot or the only food source in three or four properties and mm-hmm. every deer in the area is gonna get sucked to that until it's gone. Yep. Um yeah, that's a really difficult scenario, and, and the way you do that is with trial and error. So you're going to have to plan a little bit and kind of sort things out. Um, so when we're looking at kind of the biology side of things, we're, we're hopefully doing some deer census numbers, you know, in the month of, end of September, uh, first part of October, or, you know, mid-September, first part of October. We're working through some deer census to get an idea of what your functional ratios might be, your fawn recruitments, and and from all that, there's lots of stuff written about that now. From all that, you can determine how many does ought to be harvested and, and kind of get an idea of what your numbers are. And then you 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 forget about the rut because everything's really skewed. And you can use observational data, you know, just time in the span to, to calculate those numbers. Forget about the rut because everything's skewed heavily towards bucks and movement's a little bit goofy. And then you, the floodgates open. So you <laughs> planted that cornfield. And I, my, my research center is that same way. There is no one in, investing the energy in planting corn probably five miles and when the weather piles up and the guys are pounding their woods driving deer and other stuff we get pretty heavy in deer numbers i mean i might be dealing with numbers of you know uh, i hope no one local is listening uh, but we might be dealing with uh yeah hmm, if i want to say this i mean there could be 70 80 90 deer per square mile in there uh you know we're talking about 25 or 30 bucks on the on the property in this next week week and a half if the weather had cooperated and, and so things get really heavy how do I keep enough food to keep them healthy? That's a really difficult scenario. And, and, and quite honestly, it ends up how much can you budget the plant and, and you work through. And I have, I've taken our, on, on just the kind of the nutrition side of things, I've taken a little bit different uh, step. I have made the leap of faith where I'm comfortable on this whole electric fencing and keeping plots, um, keeping deer out of the plots. And, you know, my little honey hole I was telling you about, 
I have uh, three and a half acres of corn planted in there right now. Uh, I keep two and a half acres of that cornfield undisturbed, which by weight, you know, is 10,000 pounds worth of corn. Uh, kind of, I keep it away from the deer and don't let them have access to that corn. And, and I, based on the weather, I drop that, that fence and let them in sometime late. My goal there is I do want late season hunting, but I'm not, you know, strictly just I got to kill these deer. I, my goal is to find a happy medium where I'll have food getting through the end of February uh, in, in the March period. And, and if I have food that I maintain until that time of year, one, it gets extra bump because I can pick up a bunch of antlers around there. So I do reap the rewards from that. Um, but I, I, that's, that keeps the body fat content high, and that lets those three-year-olds and four-year-olds that are kicking around, you know, do what they want them to do for next year for antlers. So we do try to work pretty hard on that. In some cases, it's just keep them away for some food and kind of give them access to the food when they need it late in the year or you know, quite honestly, when we're talking about all this food plot stuff, if you have deer descending on your fields in your area like locusts, the best possible thing that you can do late in the year is to concentrate on natural habitat. It's firing up the chainsaw. It's doing natural habitat work. And for every hour of work you do out there, it's cheap work one. You'll generate sustaining food that will carry them for winters upcoming, you know, far beyond the next couple of years. Just for this natural food production, you can really get a lot out of it. So, you know, those, those are the types of things we do a lot in the winter on to pay attention to our deer. But it's a tough scenario when you draw every deer from the neighborhood. And, and it's real, you know, tempting to get in a situation where you say, hey, I've, you know, there's 15, there's 20 deer showing up in the food plot. I want to get my buddies all in. We need to shoot a pile of does and try to balance things, things, things out. In a lot of cases, you're, you're, you, that artificial concentration is skewing your numbers so much you may not want to be harvesting heavily those does uh, the way that you you know may be trying to plan and, and do that could hurt you the following year yeah and uh that's something i'm actually dealing with to a degree in one of my properties in michigan where i've been trying to figure out you know is this population purely skewed by time of year and the available food or is this something that's a larger year-round issue that i need to be being concerned about um and I think to your point a while ago is that something like a trail camera survey where you're getting accurate census of deer population at several times during the year is probably a key, um, a key tactic to, to really use to make that proper decision. It seems like, um, yeah, it, it, like right now on this property, I'm, I'm doing a, a camera poll tomorrow morning at seven o'clock on this piece that I'm going to see tomorrow morning. Uh, and I'll do a camera poll. One, we're doing a little strategic, you know, setup for where we're hopefully going to outsmart one of these old boys in the next couple of days. But two, I'm, I'm taking another snapshot look at, we have actually pulled back. We've got a real heavy cattle population, a heavy bear population here. Our fawn recruitment has been low, and I put the brakes on doe harvest this year uh, for the first time in seven or eight years. So we've, we've actually not harvested anything. I'm going to go back and take a well, quick little look at the census numbers and see whether or not we're going to, take some camp meat this year and, and shoot a few does or we need to kind of ride the hard line and, and not do that but we weigh say 70 percent of my decisions based on the september census and right now the numbers that you might be getting at your michigan property or i'm getting here in my new york property that's going to weigh into the conversation but it's probably not going to get equal weight as at september but it definitely needs to be addressed and looked at as, as to what's happening on a piece of property to make good management decisions speaking of trail cameras kind of jumping topics here but when it comes to in-season scouting at this time of year what if anything do you do and it sounds like trail cameras is part of that and maybe you can um, elaborate on that but what 
kind of scouting do you do during the late season to make sure you're in the right spot, um, trail cameras or otherwise? Right. So the trail cameras obviously revolutionized deer hunting, right? And the trail camera is keeping probably 70% of my clients from killing a deer they should kill every year <laughs> uh, because they, they can't stay away from the darn things. And, and they've got to keep going. And, and you know, it's, at some point it transitions from being, you know, I'm getting good data. We're back to this whole drone thing. I'm kind of looking for the deer to I'm getting the beauty pageant. I want to just keep sending my buddies six more pictures of this bucket at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and if you're in that, that scenario and you're not gathering the good data and you're just kind of just, you know, gathering some pictures, yeah, that's, that's good, but you might be just hindering things by going to frequency cameras too much. Uh, I have, uh, I've had a couple of new guys that, that I'm, I'm hunting with this year on, on our personal piece. And, and uh, Brian and Karen are pulling their hair out right now because I haven't checked their cameras in three weeks. And they're going, what in the world is going on here? You know, I, guys, I can't. You're, you're a little bit too sensitive. You're a little bit too deep in. I'm checking. There's nine cameras out there. I am keeping track of these ones that are on the fringes where I can get to them real easy. And if we, we get close to it, we'll pull those cameras and see what's there. But I'm not making a separate trip in in the middle of rifle season to see what's going on. And I just fear kind of jacking things up. Now, granted, I know the property pretty well. We have a pretty good idea what's going on uh, with with the deer, and, and we're keeping track. I am, let's call it, with a high-level frequency, keeping track of my carbohydrate food cameras. So my corn or my beans, I would be looking at those um, on a frequency every seven days, ten days, middle of the day check. You know, we're real sensitive to wind, preferably some nasty stuff where you don't think you're going to be scented, you know, and, and uh, I'm not doing any kind of really cautious about checking those cameras outside of those windows when it's kind of a perfect, I'll, I'll rather skip a week rather than keep on checking them um, and, uh, and go that route. So it's, and if you're in an area where, you, where wireless works for you and you have AT&T coverage, my goodness. I mean, it's, it's, the cameras aren't quite as good as some of your kind of hardcore cameras out there, but you, know, you might miss 20% of the camera photo potentials, but you you know you put a camera in place and leave it there for a month and it text messaging pictures. That's a pretty nice way to go. So if your state hasn't uh, hasn't you know put the kibosh on those type of cameras, uh, that's an awful nice way to keep track of things. Super low pressure. Do you ever do uh, essentially mm-hmm. observation sits during this time of year where you're? in the tree or in a tree somewhere, but really you're scouting a different place. Do you ever sacrifice a hunt just to scout visually ever? All the time, all the time. So I'm, I'm, uh, I actually hunted, uh, last week I was hunting pretty hard. I had a really good buck that showed up at my house and, and was hunting him pretty hard. I went in and hunted him, you know, right in on, on him on the food source, uh, one, one day. And I spent the next four days in a spot where I potentially could kill him. Um, if he came to the right corner of the field, but I was kind of out of his zip code a little bit. Uh, but more importantly, I could get there and observe and get out without screwing up the entire field and the 20-some deer that were working the field. So I will go on that fringe shot quite a bit. And quite frankly, this late period of time, unless I have good intel that tells me to go to the core, you know, go to that perfect little inside corner and, and hunt the food plot, unless there's something that, that's compelling me to go there, uh, with camera data or something else that I've seen, I'm, I'm hunting the fringe, you know, observing from as far away as I can, still hunting and kind of keep track of things. Uh, in, in the, but I'm not going right in there unless I have a good idea that I, I have, a, you know, stacked the deck as much as my favor as at all possible. 
and that's you know, I have the luxury of some time, so I can kind of play that game. If I'm a Saturday and Sunday hunter, you know, uh, I might be a little bit more aggressive with my style of hunting and kind of get there in on them. But, but I'm, I'm trying. I am burning a lot of sits still in the field and the woods and kind of on the fringes, kind of keeping track of what's going on. And, and, and over the years, you know, I've killed quite a few good deer that way. That, that, that they, you know, they've they've transitioned to the downward side of that poop lot. They kind of swung in there. You know, they're becoming a lot more sensitive to how they enter the fields now. And, you know, if you're all the way on the downwind side of a 15-acre field, you're still liable to have those bucks come and, and cruise down there as they try to verify with their noses there's nothing out in the field. So sometimes that, you know, used to be right on the core point where they would enter the field three weeks ago. is not the place where you want to be. They're, they're using their noses to backdoor those areas from quite a distance. So if you kind of measure up and get to the point where they would be investigating the field with their nose. Plus, you could still kind of see that social gathering area and field, and you might be watching a lot of deer at 300 yards, but you might find that you're you're killing the big buck that you want at 40 as he swings around and kind of checks the field first before he heads out there. So it sounds like, based on what you just said there and some of the things we talked through a little bit earlier, that most of your hunts at this time of year are pretty darn close to the food, almost right on top of it. Um, is that, is that accurate? Um, or are you, yeah. are you a little bit farther back sometimes? No, you know, Mark, I am, uh, uh, personally right now on my personal farms and probably with the vast majority of my clients, again, have the ability to plant and manage with their property. We're basing probably 95% of our man hours on the food plots themselves right now. And, and we're, we're, we're killing the vast majority of the deer we're killing are in the plot. So if I look at it as a, uh, a couple of years ago, I did an observational data collection with my, with my clients and polled. Oh, it wasn't a lot of people, but I polled, you know, 150 properties, you guys that are pretty serious about it. And overall, they spent 95% of their hours were in food plots themselves hunting. You know, get that outdoor channel experience and shoot them over green. Uh, during the bow season, about 15, maybe 20% of the bucks, maybe three-year-olds or better, were killed in the food plots. 75% of them were killed back in the woods. You know, still the guys are still logging 95% of their man hours on the food plot themselves and still you know, only killing, you know, 15, 20% of the deer there. So 5% of the time they're in the woods, they're killing, you know, 75% of the deer back there in the woods. So that should tell you a little bit about getting off the plot. But when you get to this late season hunt, I mean, literally we are taking less than 10% of our bucks off the fields this time of year. Uh, everything is being taken right there uh, on on those food sources and, and catch them showing up. And but again, these are guys that have the ability to kind of play that standoffish game and, and hunt for the time is right and and, uh, and and be low pressure. They don't have to play the aggressive move and, and go and try to catch them off a ridge. And you know, while four or five guys are coming at them from the other side, you know, with opening day hunting pressure type of scenarios. Yeah, yeah, that's that makes things a lot different. That's for sure. So we are coming up here on time, and I've got about 15 other things that I want to talk to you about. But I guess we, we've covered some really, some really great core topics. I think related to late season hunting, um, and so maybe I'll throw one more at you that we might be able to cover something. Maybe we didn't talk about. Maybe it's something we already did. Um, but if you had to pick the most common or most damaging mistake that you see your clients or other hunters that you've talked to making at this time of year what do you think that most common mistake is um most common mistake is right now hunting when they probably ought not to be hunting in that prime location um so 
I've had a couple clients that have, have uh, I've talked to just in the last couple of days that said, boy, I just I hit it too hard in the last three or four days of bow season, uh, trying to fill that bow tag. And, and now rifle season or gun season's rolled around and deer are pretty well burned up and they've used up the area. So they, they played the chess game a little bit too hard to one portion. It's going to take some time to bounce back. So managing pressure, I would say, is the one thing where, where people are making a lot of mistakes right now and in, in letting these bucks get a, a little bit of breathing room and get through. And and there is, the, the longer I'm doing this, the more time I'm spending with deer and clients and really uh, and getting a kick out of observing, letting these deer teach teach me a lot of things. The more I'm seeing that there is, there's very few opportunities there is to force uh, an encounter with those big deer. I mean, forget about deer drives and that kind of thing, but to force it by charging in there and going for them. The, the, it's a difficult scenario to, to make play year after year and, and make work for you. Uh, I'm reminded of a GPS study that was done in Pennsylvania recently where they, they actually studied the, the – they had collared deer, uh, and they went through – I believe it was GPS. I know they had collared deer. It may have been a, a radio telemetry bag. I'm, pretty, I'm fairly sure it was a uh, GPS study for, for the level of precision. But the way it worked was uh, they had their opening day of bear season. Uh, and the opening day of bear season, you know, if you're not familiar with the PA, it's the rite of passage for hunters. It's a week before their gun season starts up. And, you know, 15, 20 guys get in, and they drive these mountains back and forth. They do a lot of pushing and pushing the thickets. And it drives me crazy because I have guys that are super serious about the deer hunting and, and could really care less about bear hunting. They go and they drive there in, you know, four or 500 acre pieces a week before they have to go out for rifle season. What the GPS collar told us is, you know, deer are ranging, covering 500 acres, a square mile, all depends on the individual deer and his personality. And that pressure kicked in, and literally, you know, deer went down to a 15 or 20 acre little postage stamp worth of ground that they're covering, and they stayed that way for the next 45 or 50 days. And that's through that constant kind of wearing of hunting pressure. And if, if, if you can back off them and give them a sense of security for, seven days, 10 days, 15 days, if your season will allow it, you can get them out of that little donut that they've decided is their core safe area that you probably have no chance of killing them in anyhow and get them back to a more manageable pattern. You can do that kind of that drone strike and dive in there and, 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 and have a good hunt on them. But sometimes the best hunting strategy for this late time of year is just to leave them alone and, and wait, capitalize on those one or two days when it's right. And, it's, it's really hard to get used to that style of strategy of staying out of the woods. This is the most valuable thing that you can do to set yourself up for that right, that right couple day hunt. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a perfect way to end this up because I think that is the, the exact advice that I would give anyone is, is that exact approach. And probably the reason why I give them that advice is because I've read stuff from you and other people smarter than me that have, that have taught me that and it's paid off. So um, that is that is that's the ticket to late season success as far as I'm concerned. Um, if you can follow that, if you have that type of opportunity and you can manage the, and have the restraint to be careful about when you go in there, wait for the right time to strike know the right place to be based on some careful observation or scouting, and then wait for that right time. Like you said, send in the drone, make it happen. That first hunt, uh, that's pretty exciting. Even though it takes some restraint and not hunting maybe as much as you would like to, when it does all come together, when you put those pieces in the right places and it all happens the way you planned it, that is a pretty incredible feeling. And That's uh, a wonderful accomplishment. That's, that's as good as it gets in my book, sure. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. So, Neil, if people want to learn, well, well, first, 
you've written co-author with your dad two books that I really, really, really highly recommend. Can you give us a quick, quick high-level overview of those two books? What those might be about, and and uh, and where they can learn more about them. Sure, some shameless plugging at the end. Hey, I like that. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, our first book really dealt with uh, kind of land management. We called it Grow 'Em Right. Um, you can be ordered through our website, uh, NorthCountryLifeSales.com. Also, another way you can reach out and email me if, uh, or uh, reach out by telephone with some questions if you'd like. Uh, but the Grow and Life book really focused on designing a habit, a piece of property that was conducive to holding game and holding deer. So we spent a lot of time working through those wind scenarios I was telling you with designing food plots, what to plant, how to manage the overall uh, habitat concepts, and kind of designing the piece. Um, Five or six years after you've designed your piece of property, you're going to find that it's actually one of the most challenging pieces of ground to hunt because there's only so many tricks that you have available on any given piece. And, and the deer start to learn your patterns and your tricks. Uh, White Tales from Ground to Gun was uh, the complimentary book to that. It was kind of the next level. Okay, so now you've figured out how to grow them. Um, now here's how we capitalize on a piece of property and we start to harvest them consistently. And, and we at Great Lake, we talked about a lot of the kind of the deer biology stuff. We spent a lot of time talking about the hunting aspect to owning a piece of property and working with a piece of property long term, whether it's leasing or again, you know, ownership, but working with the hunting strategy associated with it to keep the piece fresh. And and we really try to explore for landowners the typical kind of glass ceiling events that every property has. It's not a you know progression that gets better and better and better every year. You, you will hit stumbling blocks as deer become alerted to different things that are going on. So we want to spend a lot of time with that in the second book. So a little bit more hunting strategy in the second book and a lot more of laying it out in the first one, Go Mike. Well, uh, like, like I mentioned, those are two of my favorite books uh, when it comes to whitetails and Everything Neil just laid out there, there's all that and a lot more. So I definitely recommend anyone, if you haven't already, go to, like you mentioned, Neil, northcountrywhitetails.com. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be the right place for somebody to go if they're interested in learning more about your consulting business as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. From that, you'll find the office number. This time you're going to call the office and it's going to pop right out to my cell phone in the, in the truck somewhere. So. Um, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm probably doing quote unquote field research somewhere, maybe <laughs> over top of that cornfield I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, reach out to us that way. It's a great way to, to get in touch with us or just hit the, you know, a lot of folks are asking questions and it doesn't have to be a consult, but if you ask some questions, you want to bounce some ideas off, we're, we're here to help and, uh, and, and here to explore and, and, uh, and hopefully convey some good information. Terrific. Well, thanks for sharing all that, Neil, and thank you for taking the last, you know, hour of your time, a busy time of year, I know, for you to to share these experiences and, and ideas and insights. I think um, I think everyone is going to be able to have something they can apply to their hunts moving forward. So, thank you so much, Neil. I'm happy to do it. It's my favorite time of the year. It's a great time. Well, good luck with the rest of your hunts, and uh, hopefully, we can chat with you again soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep. Good luck with us here. Thanks. Bye bye. All right, and that is going to do it for us today. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. It's a huge, huge help for us. Uh, in other news, also be sure to check out wiredtohunt.com shop to pick up some Wired to Hunt swag like our new flat bill hats, trucker hats, and hoodies. 
And finally, as we do every week, we need to give a big thank you to our partners who help make this show possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. So with all of that said, thank you so much for joining us today. And even though Sweet November is in the past, don't lose hope. The late season can be a great season. So good luck out there and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.